Hello, I'm John Steele of Cafe Direct, and this is the Building Better Business podcast, a podcast that examines how business can and needs to be more than just making money. Unraveling how we create new business models to better serve our communities and the environment. This really is the future of how we'll do business and how we can all play a part. Now, we have a competition to thank our listeners. The first 50 people to subscribe and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify will get a £10 voucher to buy delicious hand-roasted coffee from Cafe Direct. Just send photos of your subscription and review to podcast at cafedirect.co.uk by midnight on the 21st of November 2021. At a point where we're becoming more mindful of what comes into our lives, where we buy and how we live, businesses are waking up to a new way of doing business, a way that looks after our communities and our planet. In this episode, we're delighted to have Richard Hyde, a real rocket launcher and a trailblazer in charge of ethically sourcing and roasting Cafe Direct's coffee right back in the early 1990s. This has led to Richard traveling across the globe in search of small coffee cooperatives to directly trade with, something unheard of. Richard has a talent and passion for finding coffee cooperatives that most make a difference to the communities they come from. And he explains how building these direct supply chains has a remarkable impact. Well, it's wonderful to see you, Richard. How are you? I'm really well, thank you, John. Um, in these uh, unusual times, I think if it had been 10 years ago, my life would pretty much, or well, my professional life might have come to an end. So, um, <laughs> obviously, with all these media and ways of talking to each other, we can keep things going. And it's interesting, um, I was in the Lake District last week, and internet connection and even mobile phone connection is considerably worse there than it is in Eastern Congo. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's interesting that uh, some of the more remote parts of the world are um, catching up and even overtaking us in some respects. There are are lots of inequalities and differences in the world, and it's great to hear that there are some things that are working much better than, as you say, in the Congo than they are in, um, in other parts of the UK. I really want to talk to you because... To me, you're like the the explorer, the pioneer. I'd love to talk a little bit about you know Peru and the discovery of Machu Picchu coffee and and so on and so forth. But first of all, you were very much there at the very beginning. You know, the Cafe Direct business came into being out of the coffee price crisis and at a time when most businesses were very greedy. You know, you had the rise of private equity, you had a lot of acquisitions and mergers and it was a very commercial world but Cafe Direct was born to be quite different I just wanted to hear how that felt for somebody on the ground whether you got that real feeling of specialness and the difference it was making in supply chain terms to farmers lives First of all, you're absolutely right. Sadly, the coffee crisis that we were in at the time where coffee prices were at historic all-time lows was very much the background and uh, the impact on farmers being in many places uh, have their income severely impacted and, uh, and, and even left destitute as a result. So that was uh, part of the context. And the other part of the context was really that as a result of the way that coffee systems in coffee-growing countries were being liberalized and parastatal systems, uh, which often offered support and provided mechanisms for coffee to reach the market, were being dismantled. 
there was an opportunity for the first time is historically for farmers in most countries to be able to actually export their own coffee because previously it simply hadn't been possible. So on the one hand, you have this crisis and a lot of uncertainty. On the other hand, the concept of Cafe Direct, which you know the name obviously uh, encapsulates what it's all about, being able to establish a direct trading relationship with farmers, you know, working together, you know, the vast majority of the world's coffee is produced by small-scale farmers who come together in cooperatives to process and sell their coffee. And so those relationships became possible for the very first time. And for me, that was an incredibly significant moment. On the one hand, you've got this dreadful crisis, but on the other hand, you've got the opportunity to directly connect with farmers in a way that hadn't been possible, and farmers can directly connect with you. It had never been possible to have those relationships. You know, the coffee always went to a local middleman, an exporter, an importer, and then the roaster. And in the process, its identity pretty much got lost beyond you know, the country where it came from. It really was an exciting moment. And and, you know, when I came to work for Twin, who were the Cafe Direct founding partner, who were doing the sourcing of the coffee, there were three cooperatives, one in Mexico, one in Peru, and one in Costa Rica, who we could directly talk to and buy their coffee. And that was new and really exciting for us and for me, but it was also really exciting for the cooperatives because uh, for the first time, the farmers could understand know where their coffee came from and be able to export it. And in terms of price and within the context of a, a long-term commitment and relationship that could you know, change the way that they themselves were able to interact in the coffee market. What exactly did it feel like meeting smallholder farmers directly and helping them to see that the way their, their produce effectively was reaching consumers, I suppose? I mean, it just feels like it was very exciting for you personally and a very much more meaningful way of doing business together. What it meant in meeting these communities, I was able to talk with them, and I remember having these you know, re really refreshing conversations when they would say, "Look, you know, we've got uh, we've got you know, real challenge of of healthcare, education, you know, lack of infrastructure, and and so on." And I was able to say, well, actually, you know, we as a company, you know, we're not a charity. We don't give out grants. We don't run programs. What we do do is can give you a contract which will cover the, you know, your cost of production, enable you to invest in the business. And then the, uh, the income you earn from that contract is then yours to do as you, as you feel and as you decide. And you can use it to address all these things that are concerning you and, and your own priorities. And that was extremely refreshing. It must be so refreshing for the smallholder farmer to actually have that engagement and that that kind of knowledge that somebody's there to, to help, but in a way that's still in a business way rather than a handout way. It's sort of more, I guess, more empowering and meaningful. Absolutely. And, and one of the things really privileged in Peru in particular, but also in Mexico and, and other places and in Tanzania, uh, and Uganda, in, in many cases, they'd never ever had the visit of an overseas coffee buyer. And, and so the sense of recognition, it was important enough to us to actually go meet them, visit them, understand what they were doing and, and to do business in a way that would uh, be mutually beneficial it was something that was very new. The vast majority of the uh, work to produce high quality coffee and make coffee what it is, is done at the farmer level, at the community level. Uh, they, they, they effectively take the coffee cherry turn it into a coffee bean and that is the coffee bean that is then exported and then put into a coffee roaster and then ground up and drunk so having their work you know both recognized and also an engagement which said you know we want to work with you so you're able to produce better coffee get a better income you know and understand what coffee drinkers are looking for was also something which was uh, which was new and you know incredibly motivating
It sounds just so, so incredible. And it was such a discovery. I think my recollection from meeting you before is, is that discovery of coffee from Machu Picchu, which has been, you know, fundamental to, to Cafe Direct. But also, whenever we've talked before, it's felt like you were, you were like a, an explorer discovering Machu Picchu, although you were discovering Machu Picchu coffee. Can you describe what it felt like when you connected there? What, what was it like and what was happening at that time? You know, Cafe Direct was one of the very first buyers of coffee from most of the cooperatives uh, in Peru and Peru is a, Peru is a very large, incredibly beautiful country uh, with coffee grown you know, in the north, south, east, along the Andean chain and uh, on, the, on the edge of the Amazon rainforest. So I spent uh, already three, four, five years traveling up and down, visiting remote communities with the wonderful success of Cafe Direct, which grew actually quite spectacularly through the 1990s. We needed more and more coffee. Well, rather than going buy more and more coffee from just one cooperative, you know, why don't we go and, you know, see if we meet other cooperatives and hopefully get them onto the ladder of starting exporting themselves because some of the cooperatives we started with then went on to sell to other people. And so it's sort of, it was quite catalytic and a sort of chain effect. Peruvian coffee grows in very good conditions, but the processing wasn't always fantastic. And coffee from uh, the sort of the medium altitude mountains and the higher altitudes tended to be mixed together. So it was all sort of exported as a medium quality commodity rather than anything particularly special. There were no, apart from one or two estates in the Chanchamayo area, as I recall, there was no coffee that was really high quality. There was nothing that would be recognized as a specialty coffee at all. So one of the first cooperatives I visited was called Cochla, which is uh, based in the Cusco, Quiabamba region. And we'd been buying coffee from them since, I think, 1994. So the um, La Convention area where Kiabamba is, there, were, there was coffee grown up in many of the different valleys and on the, on the mountainsides. And I visited a number of these. One day, the cooperative leader, Jose Rivera, and I went to a place called Santa Teresa, where, where they were growing coffee. And we just walked up the mountain and up and up and up through the... And uh, Jose had a altimeter with him. And one of the things that uh, is a, um, a rule of thumb for coffee uh, growers and, and traders and aficionados is the higher up the mountain the coffee is, the better the quality is because the conditions are really rigorous and, uh, and, and as long as it's not too high so that the coffee won't actually grow, then uh, the higher up the the better the quality of the coffee bean. And we went up to uh, 1,800, 1,900, 2,000 meters, and already 2,000 meters is high up for coffee. But then we went up further, 2,100, 2,200, <laughs> just below 2,300. And uh, we looked at each other and, and I said, look, the coffee from here must be extraordinary. Can we take this coffee just from these higher elevations in this area, keep it apart, taste it together, you know, test the quality and then uh, and, and see how it comes out. They went ahead and did that, sent us the samples and it was extraordinary. At the same time, this again, this is the coincidence of the way the business was developing as well and the way that the market was going, that um, the specialty coffee business and the distinguishing coffee by coffee origin, you know, the Kenya coffee, mm -hmm. the Guatemala, the Costa Rica, the Ethiopian coffees were starting to really take off. And so, you know, Cafe Direct, you know, always looking for new ways to be able to add more value, bring something more exciting to the consumer in a way that produced opportunities for farmers, there was a real coincidence to say, can we develop a specialty coffee from, you know, with working with some of the producers that we work with, who are not in the well-known origins like Costa Rica and Guatemala, we said, well, actually, yes, we can. And we can actually produce and market the very first specialty grade coffee, really high grade coffee from Peru. And the other thing, of course, was that in terms of authenticity and the story was that, you know, you, you might think Peru 
you would call it Machu Picchu because yeah, Machu Picchu is world-renowned. But the thing was that this coffee actually came from the mountainside just below where, Cap- where Machu Picchu is. So we got that all organized. We sent the cooperative the, uh, the contract and they were starting to produce the coffee. But we soon learned that it was a year of El Nino rains. And El Nino weather pattern, which is getting more and more accentuated, uh, brings very extreme weather patterns to various parts of the tropics. Uh, including to Peru. There was the worst ever rains as a result of El Nino. And in Santa Teresa, it caused a mudslide, which carried away a big part of the mountainside, destroyed a a very large part of the uh, small town of Santa Teresa, and and actually blocked the valley and created a dam so that the river going down was backed up and an enormous sort of lake appeared. And it it meant that the people of Santa Teresa were then completely cut off because the road and the the switchback railway, which run up the valley, were destroyed. And and of course, the the coffee for the first Café Direct Machu Picchu was on the wrong side of that water and was also, it was impossible to get it out by any conventional means. There was a big rescue mission that was mounted for, for the people of Santa Teresa and that involved bringing in supplies by helicopter Um, and what the community did um, was to persuade the same helicopters that when they were bringing the the provisions in they airlifted out the coffee bags um, full of the uh, full, you know, full of Machu Picchu coffee um, down to um, down to the road, so that they could be then transported down and exported for um, for the uh, for the launch of the of the Machu Picchu product. And the cost of that operation um, was paid for by the premium price that uh, Cafe Direct was paying for the coffee, because we'd uh, decided that uh, there's a fair trade minimum price, which uh, you know is well known. But we decided that for the very best coffees we needed to you know, provide an extra premium because these were higher value coffees, higher quality coffees, higher pr- value coffees in the market. Um, and so, uh, so, so, so Cafe Director paid a premium for that coffee and that was actually used in actually to be able to get the coffee out and make the whole thing possible. So it was an extraordinary coincidence that came at a critical moment in the, uh, in, in, in the lives of the people of Santa Teresa. It's quite an astonishing um, set of circumstances, isn't it? And I think when you fast forward over 20 years to, you know, the climate change issues that the world faces, um, it's just so remarkable that 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 set of circumstances you you described almost got in the way of what has been a really important change in that community. And, you know, for Santa Teresa and for the coffee from Peru and smallholder farmers, facing into that adversity and, and getting over it. You were very much discovering these origins and I think trailblazing, if I can be so um, direct about what you were doing. But at the other end in the marketplace, how did it feel to have a kind of alternative brand really starting to flourish? Because Cafe Direct and, and the coffees and, and, and teas and cocos that have been provided created a whole kind of change in the UK. I mean, there was a there was a kind of campaigning movement behind it all. How did it feel to be part of that at the other end? There was a lot of scepticism. Say, well, you know, school-scale farmers in really remote mountains, you know, are they capable of producing really high-quality coffee? You know, is that possible? Are they really able to get organized and to export it themselves? Is that, you know, can, can, you know, can that be done? So there was, and then I think there was a little bit of, um, on so, the part of some people to say, and frankly, are coffee drinkers really going to be interested? And I think that um, the beauty about Cafe Direct was that you know it, it did manage to get into the in, into supermarkets. And I, I remember one of the main ways it got into supermarkets um, was by uh, 
uh, supporters of uh, of organisations like um, like Christian Aid and Oxfam, who had very much highlighted, for example, you know, in, in particular the, uh, the the drastic effects of the coffee crisis and the slump of uh, of global coffee pri- you know, prices, and and they said to the consumers, you know, actually, you know, there is now a, you know, there is now coffee which um, which actually directly addresses, by the way, it does the business, you know, does business, it directly addresses these issues, and Cafe Direct is there trying to get listed into supermarkets so that you can buy it. And uh, and the response of um, Christian Aid and other supporters was, you know, I think, uh, extraordinary. They badgered uh, their, the, the managers of their local stores. Uh, they sent postcards. They uh, they said, you know, we want to buy this coffee, and they actually got it listed, and which was fantastic. But then the other thing was that uh, if you you know you, you get a, you know, got a coffee listed, you can get people to try it once. But people aren't going to try it again if it's not actually you know a good coffee, if it's not something they they're used to drinking that what that what they want to drink. So it had to actually meet the uh, the expectations of consumers. And again, Cafe Direct were able to you know, to demonstrate in practice you know, that it could be done. And then, of course, um, you know, once you would demonstrate it can be done, then uh, it starts to snowball, and that's uh, and that's what we've seen. Uh, actually, I would say both on the you know, question of the you know, certified coffees, but but also on the question of of, of, of establishing these direct relationships between coffee communities uh, and producers and um, roasters and retailers. So um, so yeah, very um, very exciting. And in the 1990s, you know, Cafe Direct's uh, purchases, driven by their sales, uh, grew. In an extraordinary way, we were really literally running to keep up with demand, which was a wonderful place to be. A lot of this coffee was very much roast and ground coffee, but I think also Cafe Direct then did get into instant coffee as well. And I think that's a, a market that has been dominated by very large brands and hasn't really engaged in ethics in the same way. How did that come about? How did How did you get into that kind of part of the market? You know, in the UK, still most of the coffee that's drunk is instant coffee. So if you want to meet most coffee drinkers most of the time, that's, you know, if you haven't got an instant coffee, you're not going to be able to uh, do that. You know, as a small company with, you know, limited financial resources at that time, you can make small batches of roast and ground coffee. You can't make small batches of instant coffee just because you need to take... uh, I think it's a minimum of something like 80 or 100 tons of coffee and you have to roast it all together and uh, grind and extract and then and then dry it in one go. So so it was a it was a monumental uh, challenge. It was also a monumental risk I would say because you're putting a lot of eggs into that basket at that time. But we decided that you know it really it really had to be done. We were again as with the uh, as with the roast and ground coffee we said, look, if we're going to put a, a, a coffee with the credentials, the values of, uh, of Cafe Direct uh, in front of consumers, part of those credentials and values is that it has to be really good coffee. Otherwise, it's not going to work. So spray dyed coffee, uh, gr- you know, um, granule coffee, that's not going to work. We really need to go for the top, which is, which is freeze dried coffee because that preserves the flavor so much better. So then we had to find a, a processor who was prepared to work with us. Uh, and again, we... We weren't going to say, you know, if I'm a coffee retailer, I can go to a process and say, will you produce me X you know, amount of coffee? And, and they will then say, yes, sure, we will. And they will do it and produce the coffee to your quality specifications. What we were saying is we want this quality of coffee, but we want you to use our coffee, um, the coffee that we're, that our farmer's going to uh, provide, we're going to bring in, and we want to work with you to ensure that the, the coffee is right. Um, and in um, a company called Edel in Belgium, uh, we found uh, people who turned out to be a fantastic partner because they uh, they they, you know, they completely 
understood that if it was going to be done, it was about getting the getting the whole process really you know, right at every stage. So they said, you know, if we're going to use your coffee, I, you know, we want you to come out. We're going to taste these coffees together to make sure that they're, you know, we agree that they're the right components, they're the, they're the right the right blend constituents. And then they said, and we're going to um, walk through with you the whole process of roasting the coffee, of extracting the coffee of freeze drying the coffee and we want you to be there so that we can you know, we can do it together you know, we we looked at the market leaders um and said we you know we want our coffee to taste you know pretty much like that um and we produced the first batch and the, everybody was you know, fantastically happy with it you know, we then had the, you know took a deep breath it got launched it you know got to the, di- the distribution and uh fortunately it was highly successful the, uh, the the volumes grew and grew and grew. So uh, the first production, I think we did, you know, we did a first production, and then six months later we did a second production. We were then we got to the point uh, a few years later where we were doing productions every six weeks. But still, the um, Edel said, you know, we want you to be there. It's a co-production, um, and we want you know, we, we we want the team to be there working with us every time to make sure that uh, it, that, it, that it all works. And and the thing that was actually also personally very exciting was that Jean Dupuis, who was the manager of Adele at that time, was highly motivated by the whole you know the business, and he was you know, and they were also very excited about actually. The, the, you know, understanding where these where the coffee farmers for, were um, where where the coffee was from because it was the first time that they'd had in, that engagement with the coffees rather than just receiving receiving coffee bags with a label they actually knew where the coffee came from and a number of years later they invited the coffee farmers uh, to come and to visit the factory and see uh, see how the coffee was produced so uh, yeah it was a wonderful story. You know, so many businesses buy finished goods. I don't think a lot of our, our listeners would realise, but you know, many many companies are buying finished goods from people who process. And to hear that story of a like-minded partner in in Adal and um, really wanting to together do something different and to follow that supply chain and engage the different kind of actors, it's really exciting to hear that you know like-minded businesses can change the way business is done. Again, it just feels so much more mean, meaningful than transacting. So I think it's a really good example of you know choosing to stick to your principles and doing something much more meaningful, and then making it commercially successful. Uh, so it's a really wonderful insight. Of course, freeze dried to me, it's it's so important because also that manufacturing process is like a barrier to entry, isn't it? That scale that's required. But for farmers, I think the yield, uh, you know, the amount of green bean that goes into a cup of freeze dried means that it can make a big difference at origin. So, so it's so important to get higher value ethical coffee into that marketplace, that, as you say, is still dominant. And uh, no, it's a wonderful story. One of the things that I want to understand a bit more was in, in your day, the business was run by four founding companies, uh, as well as the, the farmers. There must have been some really positive things about that kind of um, community of people who, who care, but there must have been some incredible tensions. It wasn't set up by, a, a, you know, an, an entrepreneur trying to make money or a, a couple of people. It was very much like-minded people from very different aspects of business. What was it, what was it like to be a part of all that? It was extraordinary because it was uh, four organisations who all you know, shared a sense of purpose, mission, values, which was, you know, which was actually about making trade fairer and in, enabling uh, farmers and producers to uh, bring goods to um, to consumers. The, the roles of all the organisations actually fitted together very well. There was Oxfam, who have the Oxfam shops, there was Tradecraft, um, who have 
their uh, church network of, uh, of of selling products, and then there's this Equal Exchange, whose uh, whose job was very much to sell through Whole Food shops. And uh, so they all had their own retail or you know mechanism and outlets, and then uh, Twin and Twin Trading as uh, you know, working with producers in developing countries to help them to understand the market and making something happen. What you've described so eloquently is is the power of purpose, really, isn't it? I mean, I think when you've got something that means so much, like the values of fairness uh, that were were there, it just means you can get through things in a very different way. It makes it such more more meaningful and um it's wonderful to to hear of four organizations coming together and having distinct roles but being able to optimize the situation because of what they believe in it's just um i think it's a really important message for people and for business really that the, the power of purpose isn't it absolutely and and the, and the other thing that i would say um I was talking earlier about the, uh, the the key role of individuals in coffee growing communities uh, and the, the managers and the leaders there. But equally, my experience is that uh, that, that the way that uh, coffee roasters, coffee uh, importers, traders engage in, in individuals uh, and their own convictions and uh, their own engagement and experience play an absolutely key role in uh, changing what their organizations can do, what they can do, and changing the whole ethos and the way that business is done. And uh, there are some really extraordinary individuals, um, people who I uh, have worked with and do work with um, in in, in all levels of the coffee business. No, it's um, all testament to people like yourself, Richard. I mean, the Peru story is incredible because, you know, you know, now in 2021, you know, coffee from Peru is beautiful specialty coffee and it's changed that, 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 um, that country to, to a high degree. Where's the next Peru? Where, where do you think that the world should get the next kind of delicious tasting and empowering and life-changing coffee? Well, the two places that I've been engaged with, one for the last sort of 12 years and then once for the last sort of three or four years, are um, Eastern... Democratic Republic of Congo, the Kivus in particular, uh, and in uh, the forest areas of Ethiopia, which is where coffee you know, still grows naturally and where coffee was, you know, was born. They're, they're both examples of places where the coffee growing conditions are absolutely fantastic, but uh, really conditions in terms of uh, uh, infrastructure and know-how and opportunity have really been against farmers being able to realize the the potential of their coffee in congo it is a place where tens of thousands of farmers grow coffee has incredible coffee growing conditions some of the the finest coffee growing conditions in africa and again by being able to uh, to produce uh, and process high quality coffee and to be able to export it you know, directly to markets the, uh, the, the the way that coffee can uh, and is already starting to transform uh, the prospects of, of people in, in, in Eastern Congo, I think, is a story which uh, is, is, is starting to uh, starting to emerge and starting to be told. And I think it has, uh, you know, if, if you if you want the next uh, the next Machu Picchu, the next Peru, then I would uh, I, I, th- I think supremely I would go to uh, Eastern Congo. I mean, just li- listening to you, Richard, it's so special to hear the the enthusiasm for the quality of coffee, but the enthusiasm to also change environments and livelihoods, because it, it, it clearly is about both those things. And um, very, very exciting. And certainly, as as we talked before, you know, Con- Congo ha- has amazing coffees and an amazing opportunity to 
to to do the kind of things you did in Peru, which has been life changing. So it's really good to hear. On the on the other side, Richard, you know, with climate change and with the consequence of it, where where do you think coffee is most at risk? Are there origins which we we are in danger of losing, and that we should try to protect that, those kind of environments? I think pretty much any, everywhere co- where coffee is grown, uh, you know, farmers are experiencing big shifts in in, in rainfall, climate patterns, uh, places are heating up. And I think that what we need to do is uh, obviously there's a big global picture, which uh, which which is you know frankly uh, uh, you know enormously challenging and can be quite uh, depressing to see uh, to see that action isn't being taken more urgently. Uh, but uh, at the same time, in in each place. It is possible through relatively straightforward things like planting trees, um, like soil conservation, to mitigate some of the some of those effects and 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 enable the soil to retain moisture and to uh, and and the the coffee to be able to continue to thrive. So what I would say is that uh, it's really important that uh, that local initiatives are enabled and encouraged pretty much wherever coffee is grown. Yeah, no, I think it's really um, refreshing that although there's a, you know, the negativity of a global backdrop of, you know, um, not enough action, yet again, if people face into and take action locally and directly, we can all make a difference, can't we? But both in our lives as consumers, but also in the kind of the kind of work that you've been involved in for so long. So it is very exciting to hear of, of that view. Um, it's always a joy to, to catch up with you. This is the 30th year of Cafe Direct, and I think that's a lot down to the pioneering work of people like yourself, Richard. Well, thank you very much, John. Thanks, Richard. I always enjoy listening to you, speaking with you, and really hearing the amazing stories you have to tell. Do join us again next week on Building Better Business. I've got a word, I've got a word,